gives this the dagger. Oh! Illegal substitution, too many men on the field, Saskatchewan. Gizmo has a block in the sideline. He has not stepped out, he may go all the way. He needs one block and he'll do it easily. Promise mess, I wouldn't do this. McDavid stops up, what a move, shoots, scores! It's episode 65 of The Outsiders, powered by the Macintosh Group at REMAX River City. My name is Bryn Griffiths. Joining us, as always, is Robin Brownlee. And joining us is special guest Jim Matheson. Matty, how you doing? Uh, good, Bryn. Fine. And Robin, great to see you once again. It looks like you've been out in the yard working out a little bit. Uh, no, I've been in the house trying to get make sure the air conditioning's good, because I tell you what, it's uh, it's nice and warm. Not complaining. No. But... Uh, between me trying to get the air conditioning going and other people opening the windows, it's not a good combination. So we're getting it, uh, we're getting it sorted out. It's been crazy, crazy hot. No complaints from me. Maddie, you grew up in Winnipeg, though, so you've had hot spells because it's hot and sticky in Winnipeg, but you've also dealt with January in Winnipeg, right? Uh, yes. Uh, walking five miles to school backwards because it was a blizzard and it was 40 below us. So I always used to tell uh, my, uh, my son. Hey, let's uh, let's get right at it. The Stanley Cup playoffs, as we tape, are about ready to get going tonight. And it is the Tampa Bay Lightning, to nobody's surprise, because they are the defending champs. But they're playing the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, Robin, we're going to start with you first on this one. Your thoughts on this matchup that I bet we all predicted about two months ago. Yeah, sure. I tell you what, Bryn, we were talking earlier. I've picked against Montreal every round uh, to this point. I'm picking them in this round. Some people may say that's kind of silly. And there are lots of reasons why the Montreal Canadiens can lose this series. Tampa Bay is the better team. But there are lots of little reasons if you've been around hockey, and all of us have, that if something starts to grow in the dressing room, and whether it's uh, belief in something being the underdog, hey, it's us against the world, guys. We've seen... Uh, teams pull that all the time. It's us against the world. We're the underdogs. We don't belong here. Uh, you start to believe inside that dressing room. You put a guy like Carey Price in goal. You get a kid like Caulfield who goes, I can play in this league. I, I can succeed here. And the store, the pieces just can fall into place. The Luke Richardson story is a wonderful story uh, about how he jumped in. Uh, you know, uh, to coach for a couple of games there. Um, it's compelling. And I don't know, I pull for a story more than I pull for a team. But when I pull for a story, that story has been about the Montreal Canadiens to this point. And Jim, how do you see it? Uh, strangely, not like Robin. We used to not. <laughs> uh, I... Uh... The, the Montreal team reminds me of the 2006 Oilers, to be honest, where all of a sudden the Oilers just beat teams that were higher than them in the in the set standings because the Oilers were the eighth seed. And next thing you know, especially after the Oilers beat Anaheim, where Brian Burke said, how did we lose to those guys? And he was really mad that and the Ducks, of course, won the Cup the next year. Uh, 
but that was different. The Oilers got in the finals against Carolina, and both teams were looking at the others saying, we can beat this team. They're no better than we are. This is a case of the Stanley Cup champions playing the Montreal Canadiens, a team that was the fourth seed in the in the Norris division. It was the 18th overall in terms of, of uh, points uh, against the Stanley Cup champions. So uh, I don't see Montreal winning this series, but, you know, stranger things have happened, I guess. If Montreal's going to win this series, they have to win tonight, I think. They have to win the first game as much like they play this, the games where they get the early goal and then seemingly can shut it down and win a hockey game. The first two games are in Tampa. If they somehow won the first game, then they've got Tampa chasing them. If they lose the first game, then they're chasing Tampa with another game in Tampa before they even get back to Montreal. So I think the first game is pivotal. And I don't think – I think Montreal's had the better goalie in, you know, all these series. They don't have the better goalie in this series. They have an equal in Vasilevsky. So I think that, you know, that takes away one of the advantages Montreal had. When you take a back, look back at what I refer to as the gory years, not the glory years for the Oilers, the gory years in the 90s, anytime they pulled off an upset, they found a way to, to, to get a game out of Dallas, one of those first two. And if they won the first one, it was trouble. We had Hitch on probably a couple months ago when he talked about the fact that he, he always hated to lose the first game because it really set the table. And then, then you take a look at the at the situation with Price, and I guess you can do the the uh, Dwayne Rollison uh, comparable, although that you know over the grand scheme of things you can't compare the two, I don't think. But uh, it's if you can stay healthy and you can get the goaltender going and slide one of those first two games out, it's uh, it's series on. Was it Gretz? And both of you guys can jump in on this one. Was it Wayne that said, or at least has been quoted as saying? a series doesn't start until somebody loses a home game. And it, it sounds almost corny now, but it's very, very true. Was, was that Wayne's quote? Oh, no, it was probably Robin's quote. No, I don't, I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know whose quote it was, uh, but he's right. And especially when you start on the road, the team that is the underdog, if they somehow win a game, then usually it's two, two after four games. Cause then you go back to your place and you split again. That becomes a six game series, not a, maybe a five-game series. That said, I can remember a lot of teams, uh, underdog teams winning the first game and then the better team won four in a row. And I can remember the Oilers back in 85. They lost the first game 4-1 in Philadelphia and then won the next four games. So it, it doesn't always go according to script. But I think, like I said, Montreal has to win this first game, not the second game, the first game. Uh, when you know it's fresh ice for each team, they're going in as in into the Stanley Cup final, and they have to win the first game. You know, I, I can't take credit for that quote, Maddie. I think the better one, though, even better than that one is, and I think it was Mike Tyson. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Uh, that yeah. tends to change things. And an early an early win by Montreal, and I, you know, you can call it wishful thinking. Maybe I'm pulling for the story here. To me, if Tampa Bay wins, and like I said, huh, that's that's a probably in a lot of people's minds. Nobody's going to be surprised. Uh, I don't think Montreal is the long shot uh, or the underdog team that the Oilers were in 06. They're a, they're a, be, they're a better club. I mean, Rollison was crazy good, but for uh, an eight week stretch, uh, Carey Price has been crazy good for a 10 year stretch. 
with a couple of gaps in there. Um, if they can win a game out of there, I, I think it's game on. I, I, I wonder, though, Maddie, do we have an update on how many people will be allowed uh, at the Bell Center in Montreal with the way all these you know, uh, COVID conditions have changed? Because that's the part that plays into the atmosphere as well. I have no idea. All I know is when they beat Vegas, there were more people outside the rink than were inside the rink, and nobody was wearing a mask, and they were all within one foot of one another. So I'm not too sure how they decided they could only have 3,500 people in a in a 20,000-seat rink, but you could have 5,000 people outside in a plaza partying with no masks on, and everything was fine. So I, you know, maybe they'll get it up to 5,000. I don't know for the games, but it's still a lot less than the American you know, home crowds, but I, I can't say that the Tampa Bay's home crowd is, is intimidating. It's not intimidating like the, you know, Long Island's uh, or Vegas's. So I, you know, while there may be more people in the building in Tampa, I think however many people are in Montreal, I think they can make some noise uh, as well. So I don't think the, the crowd part of it is, is that much of a deal. I think the ice will be a lot worse in Tampa than it would be in Montreal. Maddie, another big story, and I wish it wasn't one because uh, I'd like to just worry about the results. But we, we've seen this before, uh, and maybe we'll see it again. I hope not. Officiating has been such a story in this league at different times over the years. It still hasn't changed now, this game management thing. Um, we've seen the statistics about, you know, Connor McDavid not drawing a penalty in two the two postseasons. Uh, all the high-priced talent on the sidelines. Now that's something to do with the teams they play on. But when is the NHL going to get this right, or are they ever going to get it right? What do you think? Uh, I don't think they'll ever get it right. I, I think we have to take a step back. And while you know, as a fan, you can criticize the refereeing in the Stanley Cup final, it's still a thousand percent better than a lot of the European refs who've done, you know, world championships and, and that such, which is why when it comes time to the Olympics, uh, they're always using NHL refs. You know, they're not using, for the most part, uh, referees from, you know, the countries in Czech Republic or Russia or whatever. Uh, and if they are, not very many of them. So I don't know if they're going to change it. I, it's just, it's embarrassing sometimes. It's like they go from game to game to game, and they're told, okay, now you better start calling this because you didn't, haven't been calling it. The one thing that they seemingly that they haven't called all playoff is a cross-check in the back for somebody. Uh, and, you know, you've seen the cross-checks. You know, the player you, with the stick in his hand uses that as a lever, throws it into the small of somebody's back and propels them into the boards and, and pushes them. And there's no, there's no fouls whatsoever. And yet, you know, a guy will be skating up the ice and, you know, you'll stick the stick in and tap them on the gloves and you'll get a, a hooking penalty. So it's, it's neither here nor there. It's not like, I guess it's a 50, 50. If, if you don't call the penalties, the fans and the players are going, oh, what? that's a penalty. And if you call too many penalties, I think it's like exhibition season in the NHL where teams get in seven and eight power plays and the game's decided by the power play. So all I know is there's an awful lot of games in these Stanley Cup playoffs where one team gets one power play and the other team gets two or a 60-minute 60 game, 60 game, which seems incredulous to me with 
with the amount of aggressiveness the game is being played. The whole world is upside down, though, because the FIFA Euro 2020, the officiating has been spectacular. I thought I'd never, ever say that about officiating in soccer. And yet the NHL stuff has been so inconsistent, but it's just been a very, really, really bizarre year. The other thing that's been kind of bizarre is the way the Canadian division has been maligned by so many south of the border. I've never seen so many Leaf fans, Oiler fans, fans right across our country pulling for Montreal like they are this year because they just want to shove it up the, uh, well, you know what they want to do with with this uh, this thinking about the Canadian division being so weak. What's your take on all that? Um, I thought it was ridiculous during the season. The people, you know, down south were, were maligning all the points that McDavid got and all the goals that Matthews got, claiming that it was a crap division and that's why they were doing it. And there were so many bad teams in the division. What about all those California teams playing in that one division? Yeah. All of them bad. Uh, you know, you can't tell me that a division with Buffalo and Detroit in it is very good. So every division had some teams and for the most part that weren't very good. So I guess it's, I think, I think the fan in Canada is more excited that there might actually be a Canadian team winning the Stanley cup rather than the whole division being maligned. I think this is, it's been a while since there's, you know, you know, Vancouver in 2011. So we're talking 10 years ago, there was even a Canadian team in the final, never mind a team win. So, if you're a Montreal Canadian fan, you think they got a great chance. If you're a fan of hockey in Canada, you're probably looking at it and go, they'd have, they'd have had a better chance playing the Islanders than they will play in the Tampa Bay Lightning because the Lightning don't know how to win. And I guess by now we should all think that Patrick Maroon is the good luck charm on these teams because he could win three Stanley Cups in a row with with a prohibitive favorite i would suspect in tampa but you've been around long enough to know that there's always somebody who wants to find a way to discount somebody's success when when gretz was putting all those points on the board in the 80s there was a lot of talk about well is he really that good and now we've got this situation with connor where they're trying to discount this past season next year they're going to be in the pacific division uh, by the looks of it and they're going to be playing these california teams and there's going to be that want and that need by others especially down east to want to find another way to discount Connor McDavid's success and even laying on dry sidles, and it's unfortunate. It is, and when Gretzky was playing, they said the goaltending was terrible. That's just why you get all those 200 points. Goaltending was terrible. But when you watch film of those goaltenders, they didn't exactly look like they were square to the shooter in a lot of cases. As the guy was coming off the wing to shoot the puck, they were leaning one way or another, and... Uh, they didn't play the. I noticed they didn't play the whole game on their knees like a lot of goaltenders today, sliding yeah. across the crease. They pretty much stood up. But I think that you know it, it's always going to be the way it is. The player who is better than everybody else, they're going always going to say, "Yeah, but you know he's playing in a not a very good division," or "Yeah, the goaltenders are bad," or you know he's got lots of great supporting cast, which is why he does so well. I think if you look at Connor McDavid, he doesn't have a very good supporting cast. He has Leon Dreisaitl and he's still getting, you know, almost two points a game. So this isn't like Gretzky back in the day, having Messier and Anderson and, and coffee on defense and, you know, you know, Yuri Curry and stuff It's a little different. Well, it's funny too, Maddie, because you hear the goaltender thing. And I tell you what, you saw some of it, as as did I. 
Um, and what I haven't seen live, I've seen on YouTube. There was a lot of bad goaltending, but let's not forget, these goaltenders never seemed to be quite as bad against anybody else as they were against Gretzky. There's probably a reason for that. Everybody played against the same goaltenders, and he was winning scoring titles by 65 points. So I think we should we should probably not forget that. Um, we want to jump to the Oilers, too, because there's some things going on with them this offseason. But one league thing I, I want to bounce off you, Jim, um, this whole Chicago situation, um, it's not about the game, and it's again, it should be about the game. But we've seen this before, you know, back uh, when I was at the Journal, we all know what happened with, you know, Sheldon Kennedy and then Theo Fleury, and I ended up writing a big series on that with Charlie Gillis. And, you know, in this day and age, it's, it stuns me that anybody, any team like the Chicago Blackhawks could think that these kind of things could go on and you could just employ the old what happens on the bus stays on the bus thing. First of all, this isn't a couple guys going out and getting shit-faced uh, and breaking curfew. This is far more serious than that. And to have all those hockey ops people who are being accused of knowing this and keeping it quiet and the only reason it comes out is a lawsuit filed in May. It's stunning to me that the organization wouldn't come forward with this before now. What's your take on it? Well, you just encapsulated everything I thought too. It's hard to believe that the team would, would try to, you know, deep six this and say, uh, you know, didn't happen. And, you know, the coach alleged, you know, allegedly did this to two players sexually assaulted them um was just suddenly not on the team anymore he you know he left you know he just left and i i suspect because he was a video coach not a you know the alternate you know associate head coach or whatever people said oh video coach leave yeah okay fine whatever yeah but to to be told about it and then not say to yourself oh we got to report this you know and then see what happens. It, it's rather incredulous, to be honest. And while that was 10 years ago, um, you know, and certainly we're in a different time now, but it's still after, you know, it's well after the Graham James, Theo Fleury, Sheldon Kennedy situation in junior hockey, so that people would realize you can't have this stuff happening and not report it. So it's stunning. And if you're in the employee of the Chicago Blackhawks and uh, in whatever management capacity you're in, you're probably thinking today, what did I do back in 2010 not to stand up and, and you know, report this? Because if they did not, you know, if they knew it and didn't report it, then um, it's not a good look for any of those management people. And certainly if you're a player on that team, they always talk about when you're on the on a team, we're all part of the family we're all a family right. well it doesn't sound like you're a family then if if uh you didn't report it got to ask you about ryan nugent hopkins because we have the kraken draft coming up on the 21st of july what are you hearing about nuge these days any anything or is is radio silence a good thing uh i think i don't know if it's a good thing i think 
you know, Ken Holland comes from the schools, you know, like a lot of general managers, when something happens, you'll find out. Now he's more than willing if you text him or something to talk, but you know, in terms of signing people, I, I think it's a, it's a matter of term more than dollars with Ken. And he's looked at how old he is, 28, and he knows the analytics and he knows when players game drops off and he doesn't want to give a guy six years when five is, is plenty for him. I think he's probably looked at the contract that Jordan Everly signed in, in Long Island, you know, recently, five years, $5.5 million. And that's what he's thinking. Why, why, why do I have to give him the same money he was making before? I'm going to give him an extra year more than I want. I think it's in his case, he's probably thinking five years at 5.5 or four years at a little more than six. So it, it's the player's call. And I think in, in this situation, it's all Ryan Nugent Hopkins call. If he wants to be an oiler for the next five years, or whatever, he'll be an oiler. Yeah. He doesn't. There's a team out there probably going to offer him six years at six million. But I guarantee you, it's not a very good team. It'll be a bad team with lots of cap room. And he's already been through 10 years of this. Many of those years, not very good. And I don't know why he would want to go somewhere else when he's made 44 million already. And whatever the owners offer him is 25 or to 30. That's 75, 80 million. It's interesting though, because you've got Nuge in the situation where he can see maybe something's developing here. But what about a year from now with Darnell Nurse? Do you think he might find himself in the same situation? Because Looks like it could be a big payday for him. However, same thing could end up going to a team where it's another rebuild. True, but I think they'll get something done with Darnell Nurse this summer. Okay, I think there's lots of comparables with Darnell Nurse around the league of guys that got eight years, eight million, and now they may try to not pay him eight million, but they'll probably give him eight years at seven and a half or something like that. Uh, I think there's a bit of a pecking order on the orders. The best player makes 12 and a half. Leon makes eight and a half and should be making 10 and a half. Right. He, they got him at a great bargain. And, and then you drop down to the best defenseman who, you know, has got to be over seven for sure. Uh, seven and a half makes a lot of sense to me. But John Carlson got an eight-year contract for $8 million in Washington and is their number one defenseman. So I'm sure that might be a, a comparable for Darnell. And, you know, getting back to Nuge, uh, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, he is a he is part of the leadership group, but we all know that the three most important players on the orders are McDavid, Drysdale, and Nurse, and then Nugent Hopkins. Um, and if they had a star goaltender, then it would be in that in that group. So he's perceived on the orders as part of the leadership group because he's been here for ten years, rightfully so. But in terms of core players on the team. He's fourth. He's not Darnell is third. Maddie, the other sticky area here uh, is going to be uh, on defense in, you know, the, the two factors. It doesn't look like Ken Holland is going to get uh, a solid answer from Oscar Clefbaum about his status uh, as early as he would like. Um, and that ties to well, if we're not going to have Clefbaum coming back into the fold and we're not going to pay Tyson Berry enough to keep him in the fold, uh, that's a big chunk of your defense. How do you see that playing out? Um, I, I think 
you know, Oscar Clefbaum would probably tell Ken Holland, it seemed, the shoulder seems to be coming around, but I don't know if I could play until I play ex exhibition games to see how it is. But that's in September. So then Ken Holland leaves him unprotected, as we all figure he will. And if, if Seattle wants to take a player coming off major surgery, shoulder surgery for two more years at 4.1, you know, they will. But I don't know if his contract is insured. So, you know, they're picking up $8 million yeah. of a player that there's no insurance company going to be paying that if you can't play. So that's a, a risk for them. On the other hand, if you take a look at the owner's roster and you had a shot at Oscar Kleffbaum thinking, you know, he might be able to play. And if he's able to play, he's in our top two. Or you take Caleb Jones, who is going to be in your third pairing for sure. But younger, but healthier. So, yeah, I don't. And in Ken's case, he's got a, if Oscar can't play, I think regardless, I think this summer, Ken Hall would be trying to sign or trade for a second pairing left defenseman. Because after Darnell Nurse, you know, they had a rotating, you know, situation there with lefty, whether it was Caleb Jones or William Lagason or Chris Russell, um, you know, they traded, you know, they, they traded for Kulikov and played him you know, all the games, mm -hmm. but when push came to shove, they set him out. And, yeah. You know, in the final, which is a, a large tell. So I don't know if he figured their plans to bring back. So I'd have to go through the list of unrestricted free agent left defensemen. I would, the left defenseman that I would try to get uh, is Ryan Graves, who plays in, in uh, Colorado. Because I think if if Eric Johnson comes back and looks like he can play while he plays a different side, I think they're pretty set on left lefty, and they you know Ryan Graves might be available um, in terms of trade, or if if he's available in expansion draft, I'm sure that uh, that Seattle would probably take him too. Is is there any need to see if you can do a deal with Tyson Berry? I don't know that it's doable. He he took a cheap contract and he led defense, NHL defenseman in scoring, bet on himself and won big. But if you don't go after Barry, um, is that right side deep enough? Or, uh, uh, you know, how do you see that whole right side, Matty? Well, I think they're counting on Ethan Bear stepping up like he did the year before and looking like he can play in the second pairing. I think... I think you're going to see either Bear or Larson playing with Darnell Nurse. And whatever one doesn't, then they have to find a left defenseman to play regular minutes. And I don't think, I think, I think if Tyson Berry wanted a three-year contract, no more than three, at five and a half, even six, I bet you they might go to six, but only for three years because they're not blocking the Evan Bouchard any longer than three years and they're blocking a, a defenseman who can theoretically do some of the same stuff that Tyson Berry can. So I'm sure there's a team out there would give Berry five years at 6 million, not three. And you know, there's lots of teams looking for offensive defensemen. So I think if you're asking me if we'll leave you back, I think it's pretty slim and he's, you know, he bet on himself here and he was a success, you know, I, you know, if, I was if I was Ryan Nugent Hopkins and didn't like the money the owners were offering, I would sign a one-year contract. 
sign yeah. a one-year contract, have a great year, and then next year you'll be better off. But he's coming off not a very good year, you know, in terms of points, certainly even strength points. Yeah. He's dropped dramatically this year, and that's unusual for Ryan because he's usually pretty good. But, you know, that's not the way most players think. You know, they're, they want the security of the long-term deal, and that's probably what he'll get either here in Edmonton, not for as long as he could probably get for another team. Have to change gears up a little bit here because, uh, you know, w- when I think of you, I think of a guy who has uh, has been around for quite some time and has seen an awful lot in this city. You've seen the great days, you've seen the miserable days, and you've seen these growing days. Are, are you a little amazed when you look back at your career and uh, – and and also count your lucky stars because this has been this has been a fun ride, Maddie. I got to think. It has, and my a lot of my Twitter followers want me to have retired fifteen years ago because I'm too old. <laughs> you know, there's such you know, there's, you know I res, I refrain from saying what I want to say on Twitter. Yeah, that's all right. Um, but uh, yes, I mean I'm fortunate to have covered the greatest player ever lived, Mark Messier, who's you know, I think maybe the top 10 players who ever lived, you know, Curry and Anderson and Coffee and Lowe and Pure, seven Hall of Famers. So I got lucky there. And to be honest, the, the, the teams that were really fun to cover were 2006, where all of a sudden they're in the Stanley Cup final. 1990, when Wayne had left and the Oilers still managed to win. Yep. And those teams in the late 90s, where the cap one team was spending 80 million and the others were trying to get by with, with Cal Nichols and crew on 35. And yet they, you know, they beat Dallas the one year and Colorado the year after that with Doug Wade and Bill Guerin and Ryan Smith and Cujo. Jason's and Cujo yes. Nets and, and, and those were fun times, um, you know, to be, be covering the team. So, um, you're, it, it's unusual that we run the gamut, but I think the worst teams to cover are the average teams, the forever 500s, as my friend Kevin Dupont says in Boston. Those are the worst teams. The, the forever team, 500 team, thinks they're better than they are. The writer says, no, you're not. You're, you're, you know, as they always, always say, your record is who you really are. That's your record. So the teams that are either really good get a lot of good players on the team and they're very, they're fun to cover because they're quotable and stuff. And the teams that are bad, there's always lots going on. They're trading players, they're signing players, you know, players get hurt. So there's always something to write. It's the teams that are average forever aren't much fun covering. Now, I think I probably know the answer to this, but at what point did you just have to look at your dad and decide, I want to be a sports writer. That looks like fun. Um, when we'd get me autographs of famous people, because <laughs> he, he got me, you know, he got me an autograph of, I got me a picture taken with Stan Musial when he was a great player. Wow. When the Winnipeg gold eyes were the farm team of the St. Louis, uh, you know, um, Cardinals and and he got me a job caddying for Gordy Howe when I was like 12 years old because he was a sports editor so I thought this is a pretty good deal and he seemed to be going to nice places all the time through his job and and you know, I remember trying to to write and I wasn't very good at it and it's one thing to have 
you know, working at a newspaper and you just plod along and, you know, as a kid and hope that you get better. But when you start out and your dad is looking over your shoulder and say, no, 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 no. Eventually he's saying, what was the score? <laughs> you don't get to give me six paragraphs. <laughs> who beat who and what was the score? Because it's just the first two paragraphs tell me who, what, where, why, and how, and then you can get into the quotes. So I had a pretty good teacher, but. I, mean, I got lucky coming to Edmonton and we had a, a lot of really good people that are newspapers for a long time of sports writers and two excellent papers to, to, uh, to look, you know, work off. It's not quite the same as you know, now, Robin, it's, there's not much space to get anything in unless it's pro team. You know, you can't, I did do a box, a couple of boxing stories uh, the other day, oh, a woman boxer for you who, you know, you know, boxing. So uh, I did a couple of those and she was very gracious. And and I found it un- different when you're trying to, to talk to a boxer who's a, even a professional boxer and you're trying to interview him and you're not there. And you say, is there any possibility I could talk to, you know, the lady? And uh, you get a call back in two minutes. Hey, how are you doing? Unlike a lot of wow professional hockey players that uh, you got to run through the PR person first before you, you can even talk to him. So I found that uh, somewhat different. You know, I, I have to ask this one because I, I look to you and I look to Cam Cole and Jonesy, Terry Jones, and I don't know how you put up with young reporters like me. Uh, the one thing that I learned from watching you guys was really shut up and let the good guys, the guys who the veteran guys speak first find out exactly how to ask a question. And uh, eventually uh, when things start to wind down a little bit, you get to jump in and you get to find out a little bit more, but I don't know how you guys put up with guys like me starting in the business. Uh, you, you were, you were pretty darn good. It's the other people that, that uh, steal your stuff. You ask all the questions, they take all the answers yeah. without asking any questions. And it's certainly and zoom. Zoom today is no fun whatsoever. You can't, carry on a conversation with anybody you get your 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 two minutes of you get one question and a follow-up but if you don't phrase it right often you don't get the answer you want and then you can't leave it at that one question because you, you have something else you want to ask so it's no it's not much fun well let's stay with that because this has happened on more than one occasion in more than one city there used to be the times where you could grab a guy after a practice take him around the corner and have a great conversation there was a conversation and you could pull things out of it and you can't do that anymore. I, I feel sorry for the guys now because you just can't, you can't go deep anymore. It's all surface stuff. Are you finding that? Oh yeah. It's, it's, there's very few features written on anybody. Now. Right. And if you want to just do a story on a, on a specific player and his family and whatever, you have to set it up in advance and then say, we'll talk after everybody else and we'll do it then. Because if you don't, you start asking questions of this guy. Next thing you know, you turn around, there's all these TV cameras and they think, well, what's he got that we don't have? Yeah. And the play, then all of a sudden, then the player's back to being, okay, deer in the headlights. There's, there's, you know, you know, three TV cameras and websites and everything. And you don't, you don't get very much. So the days of, and I hate to keep going back, but the days of walking into a dressing room, when you actually cover the team and you also travel and you're able to sit down beside a player 
and say, how's your day going? What did you, what did you do this morning? Where, you know, and then say, okay, now I have to ask you some questions. And he goes, yeah, yeah, fine. So you get 15 minutes with the guy by yourself yep. on the road. That's done. You don't do it. It would happen to Gretzky all the time. It happened to Messier all the time. It never happens with Connor McDavid when you're on the road. Never, ever, ever. And not where you can sit down and, and start just talking. It's not happened. Not just Connor, Leon, whoever's on the team now. Well, Matty, I mean, I was late to the game here. Uh, I got, you know, I got here in time for that 90 Stanley Cup. But I remember watching you and Cam and the established guys work. And you just don't get that anymore. Now it's one and done. It's uh, on the platform or a scrum. And the last couple of years now with COVID, the Zoom thing, which no thanks. Um, you you can't serve your readers. You can't have a conversation with somebody like you used to where they'll tell you something that nobody else has, A, because they know you, B, because they trust you. Um, everything's just the same now. It's it's There's no depth there because they don't allow uh, depth in conversations. Not a lot of scoops anymore, Robin. In fact, if we use that word, they think you're really old. Scoop. Wow. <laughs> What ice cream place is that? Yeah. You know, there's no such thing as a scoop. You don't, you could have a tough time. And, and it used to be that you could cover the beat and you always had somebody within the Oiler organization who you could bounce stuff off of who wasn't the general manager and find out stuff and say, I'm thinking of writing this. And then the guy would say, yeah, I wouldn't go there. So you'd say, okay. Yeah. You know, so, or he'd, he'd tell you a few things, but you could never quote him. So you, you don't even have that anymore. Even when you're covering the beat, you know, you used to think that you could come up with stuff, but now when stuff happens, the object is to find out something and get it on Twitter in five seconds ahead of anybody else. And it might not be very much and it might be wrong, but it's on Twitter five seconds before somebody else. And that's the important thing. And plus you're, you're working against now these quote insiders, all good people, Elliot Friedman and, you know, he used to be Bob McKenzie before he retired and Pierre Lebrun and Darren Drager and, you know, all sorts of them. They're more tapped into the league and are also finding out stuff ahead of the people on the beat, which I think is very sad because, you know, the, yeah, they're tighter with the agents or tighter with the NHL's, you know, central registry and they're finding out stuff of, you know, this trade's coming down or, the, you know, on free agency. It's always mind-boggling to me that they know on free agency long before teams and they know how much the contract is for it too so we're not finding out that stuff very often well look at trade deadline day where and we've been on the road for a few of those where guys are actually watching tsn or sportsnet in the locker room and finding out before a gm even phones the player it's amazing how things have changed it's all about right now isn't it uh, that's right now. And you, you know, if you're a player, I would hope that the general manager gives you a call before you see it on TV, but it's not always the case. You know, it, as first off, it's not often the general manager, it's the assistant because the general manager is trying to make another deal. Yes. So he can't get to the guy. So, but yeah, it's, it can't be much fun to be seeing something on TV. We're, we're like us. We're sitting on the couch at home. We're watching it on TV and we're finding out and going, what? That's the trade. And the players say, what? That's the trade. I got to go to Buffalo. 
Can I go to Buffalo? Okay. Never saw that one coming. Hey, uh, let me just throw a quick little laundry list of some names at you. And then you just give me, give me your, your gut reaction and your thoughts. Okay. Glenn Sather, Slats. And I'm sure there'll be a big smile, but what do you remember most about Slats when, when you were covering the team and he was here? Uh, and Robin would probably attest to this too, his ability to use the media to get his, his message out there. If a player wasn't playing well, he would suddenly sashay over to a group of media people sitting in the stands of practice. And you'd ask him one question. Next thing you know, he'd be criticizing Paul Coffey or something yeah, because he wanted it in the paper and, and he wanted the player to notice, you know, and, and so, that and I think the, his ability to uh, coach great players, not a lot of coaches can do that. You know, you have to have them on your side, but you also have to scold them every now and then. And I think Glenn was very good at that. And, he was, you know, he was always a great coach. He was always – he's unusual in, in today's sport in that – he would go to the rink and he would sit with the media guys or he'd be sitting above them and you could always go over and talk to him for five minutes and get some background stuff, even if you didn't quote them. Now there's a lot of them, you know, they're, they're not all that crazy about it. And there's one former general manager of the Oilers was certainly that way. And, uh, you know, you go to practice and it was almost like there was a electric fence around him and you couldn't talk to him. So. That wasn't, that wasn't, wasn't much fun. Yeah. And in fairness so, yeah, too, Glenn. Glenn also liked to see if you had a little backbone, did he not? Like I, he would always challenge you yeah. to see if you stood up for what you were reporting, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know yeah. a bunch he, of us went through that. that. Well, he would scold you and, 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 and get mad at you. But the next day he would, the only time he ever really got mad at me was when I happened to say where his house was in Edmonton. He didn't want people knowing that he lived by the Storyland Valley Zoo. Of course, he doesn't anymore. But, you know, I basically kind of said where where it was by the, by the zoo. And he got very mad at me because he'd be on the road and he didn't want Ann and his kids yeah. here when he was on the road. So that was, and I admitted I'd, I'd made a, a mistake and, and uh, didn't do it again. Okay, another name, Wayne Gretzky. What are you going to say about Gretz? That you probably haven't said um, already. Well, it's yeah, it's hard. It's um, I think he, he was two different people when he first a professional. He was very quiet. He had nothing to say. Kind of like Connor McDavid when he first got to the NHL, nothing yeah. to say, and what he did say was always politically correct. Until he said, you know, as we all know, that Jersey's team was Mickey Mouse, and then, and he, you know, he got criticized for that, and then backed off a little bit. But he, he was always accommodating. He was the best player ever lived, but he was always accommodating as a media person. And you will well know that. You know, he didn't he didn't say to you, oh, "I don't know you," so yeah. I'm not talking to you. He was very good at knowing who the reporters were in town and the visiting reporters as well their names and he was one of those people that you could gather around him you know three four five guys and you could ask him questions about the league what do you think about this and he'd have an opinion now you don't see that so much 
you know, they, I don't know if they, they just don't want to say that, but he always had an opinion about stuff that was going on in the league. And that was, he had great insight, I thought, too. And I guess we'll find out how he is as a studio commentator for TNT and Mark Messi is one for ESPN. So I guess we'll see how they are. And then, of course, there's a guy like Yari Curry who is so quiet, yet when he said something, he, uh, at least I always found when he said something, it was of great importance. It just He just didn't want to be talking to reporters or media guys very often, but what a guy, huh? He was a good guy, and, and for a, per, a player who came here, he spoke very little English, and he learned how to speak English, and then became very conversant in English, interviewed all the time. Um, never got the credit he deserved because he played with Wayne, and they figured he was piggybacking on Wayne's ability and didn't get the, the uh, hype that he should have got for the scorer he was. Um, you know, and... You know, I can remember when Wayne wasn't here in 1990, he scored an awful lot of goals in the playoffs. So it wasn't yeah. just Wayne helping him out. And, and you know, the two things that, that stick out with, with Yeri were he was the best defensive forward on the team. You know, he never won the Selkie, as I, as I recall, but when the orders were down five to three, you know, in terms of two-man disadvantage, you know, he would be the forward out there. Um, and Glenn said would put it because he, he figured he was his best defensive forward. And the other one I have, yeah, I was, you know, one day in practice, you know, he would, you know, be at, at the blue line firing pucks at the net and he'd lean over and says, I'm going to put at least eight of these off the crossbar. And sure enough, bang, eight of them off the crossbar from 60 feet away. Yeah. So uh, his, his, his accuracy was uncanny. Hey, Bryn, I want to, I want to a- ask about one person here too. Um, I don't know. I haven't added up the years. He may be the longest serving oiler at this point, but if you go right from the beginning till, till now, it's a long, long time. Uh, and you've seen him in every role, Maddie. Uh, Kevin Lowe. Uh, he was the, uh, the conscience of the team, I think, in the early, in the glory days. I think Wayne was the star. Messier was, had the fire and Kevin was the conscience of the team. I think he did a lot of the, the dirty work, and he also, um, you know, behind closed doors, I'm sure did a lot of the talking and, and led by example. And you're right, he's, you know, it didn't surprise me that he became the coach briefly and then the general manager and then, you know, moved on from there. And I know there's lots of fans in Edmonton cannot stand Kevin Lowe. You know, forgetting the you know all those years he played, and all they want to talk about is his work as a general manager. Um, and you know, like a lot of general managers, he maybe fell in love with too many of the older players and gave them contracts that were too long after two thousand and six. Yeah. But he also built the team in two thousand and six that got to the Stanley Cup final. And, yep. You know, by by trading for for Pronger and you know and getting Pekka and getting Rollison and, and the list goes on and on and on spot check and all sorts of players, you know, who turned out to be awfully good players. He didn't lose too many trades that, uh, that year. So, you know, he's in the hall of fame and it took him an awful long time to get there, but he's in the hall of fame too. Bryn, I got to ask one more cause Maddie just reminded me of it. Building for that, uh, 
that team any and Samsonov was part uh, of there's that another one. Uh, yep. as well but for weeks and I'll t- and I've mentioned this as other guests and I'll say it with Maddie we've laughed about it I was so scared and I was confident in my ability but I was always scared shitless that I was going to get beat by Maddie on the beat because I mean the guy's been at it forever and he's the first guy that took me around under his wing a little bit and this is so-and-so and that's so-and-so. So now I go to the other paper. And you remember, Maddie, we were we were sitting in the stands at practice, and I'm hearing they're after uh, Dick Tarnstrom. Oh, I'm hearing Yaroslav Spachek. No, that's not what I'm hearing. We go to L.A., and we get called down to the uh, – by Bill Tawelli, there's going to be – there's going to be – and I think you had – Tarnstrom, or or was it reversed? I had spot check, and they call us down. And I've been writing for weeks. It's going to be spot check, and Maddie's been writing for weeks. It's going to be Tarnstrom. They call us down. The Oilers have uh, we've acquired Dick Tarnstrom, and I think, oh shit, what the hell? I I look so you look so stupid now. Maddie's calmly all these weeks been writing Tarnstrom. An hour later, they call us back. The Edmonton Oilers have acquired Yaroslav Spachek. And it was just, it was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? Back in those days, nowadays, you know, like I said, we don't get many scoops. I always felt badly. And I, you know, that if I had something and you're traveling with this other person and you're going out for dinner and stuff like that, I always felt badly. But if I had something that you didn't have and the next day at paper, you know, I felt badly that we did gone out for dinner. So, I mean, there were some times, not necessarily, I don't know if you remember, but I would say this might be something going down here. So, you know, wouldn't necessarily tell you what it was, but you could, you might want to check on that. So I didn't like the next day, you know, coming out with something if the other person, you know, you just gone out for dinner with the night before, you know, didn't have it. And, and, you know, I can remember going to see Connor McDavid playing junior hockey in Erie when the orders were in Pittsburgh. And Bob Stoffer knew two guys who were fan. you know, they, they saw Stoffer in the lobby and they knew the Oilers and they were from the Pittsburgh area and they were hockey fans. And they said, oh, we're going down to see McDavid play tomorrow night against somebody in Erie, Pennsylvania, and they asked Bob if he wanted to go. And Bob said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It was an off day. And then he saw me. He said, you want to come too? I says, yeah, yeah, sure. And I said, well, what about Derek Van Deest? They only have room for two of us. So, so I went with Bob and, you know, for the game, you know, came back, you know, at midnight or something and, De- and had – you know, and Derek said, where were you? He says, well, I got to tell you, he says, I went to see McDavid. And, you know, Derek was pretty crestfallen that, that uh, he hadn't been asked. And I felt badly, you know, because I'd already talked to, you know, McDavid and stuff. But uh, that's the way it goes, I guess. It's now fun- Derek's one of us. Yeah. It's funny the things you remember because the two that stand out for me, and you can just uh, jump in anywhere you want here. I remember being at the Boston Garden in 1990 for that crazy 
quadruple overtime game. Was it triple overtime or quadruple? I, I all I remember was there was late a, in the late in the third overtime. Yes, and I still remember how sticky and hot it was in the garden. And we're looking at our clocks and our watches, and we're thinking, man, this is going to go to one o'clock in the morning, and it did. But you were the guy who said, "Has anybody seen Peter Klima lately?" Bang on the ice, goal. The other time, and funny, both both of the stories that I seem to recall with you were in Boston, and we were also out at Legal Seafood one night, and we saw Dennis Rodman and his entourage wandering through the uh, the restaurant, and he had, as I said, he had more ing- rings than Saturn. He was, it was just yeah. a crazy, crazy uh, time. Must have been the Boston experience or whatever, but. Man, there's some good fun stories uh, uh, when you're traveling with the team and you get a chance to be part of that. It, it, it just, to me, that's where the magic happens. Do you feel that way? Well, you, oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, when, when Mark Messier's uncle, Larry Messier, worked for Muhammad Ali, he got us to Muhammad Ali's house one day for a birthday party. And, you know, Mark was there, but Wayne wasn't there for some reason. I don't know where, where Wayne was, but the team all went and, you know, where, how else would we get to Muhammad Ali's house? Got <laughs> yeah. to the mash set because, you know, as, uh, you know, as well, because Jamie was, uh, was a huge hockey fan. So Jamie Farr, right? Uh, Jamie Farr. Yeah. A huge hockey fan. So we got to see the mash set too. So we get, there's all sorts of good stuff you get on, on the road and kind of missed that the last, you know, 18, you know, 18 months where there's no travel anywhere, you know, you're not getting, you're not seeing other rinks and talking to other guys in press boxes and going out for dinner and stuff. That's part of the allure of it. Matty, I got to credit Bryn with this one because uh, when we were chatting about the show today, he brought it up. Nobody's seen more than you have when it comes to this hockey club. Will you ever be moved, do you think, to uh, write a book about uh, your time as a Oilers slash NHL scribe because I tell you what, there's a lot of stories in that coconut of yours. No, I will not. Wow. Because I can't remember. I cannot remember <laughs> from year to year. So, you know, I'm thinking, was that that year or was that the year before? And I can't. And Rod Phillips and I both talked about writing a book together because Rod had lots of stuff that I didn't have. But the longer you went and didn't jot stuff down at the time, your memory it doesn't fade, but you thought this was this year and that was that year. So it became too much fact checking for, for me. And I, you know, I also know other people that have written books and while it's a labor of love, I think to write a book and have your name on it and, and have talked to people and stuff, you don't get paid very much money for it. And, you know, it's a long, you know, slog to track people down and stuff like that. And, you know, Mark Spector did a really good job on the Battle of Alberta and did mm-hmm. also a really good job on the World Juniors. So, But in answer to your question, if I was 50 years old, you know, back in just after 1990, say, you know, or before 2000, I could say, yeah, yeah, fine. But uh, now, uh, not going to happen. Okay, to wrap this up, and this may be a tough one, I I lost my dad in 1988, so he never really saw my broadcast career, and I know how we would have felt about it. But what do you think your dad would say to you now if he saw everything that you've gone through? How would he How would he look at that? Would you get great compliments, or would he have just nodded his head? How, how would he have responded to you now? Well, I think he was 
when I was lucky enough to get in the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2000, my dad was there. Uh, so he was very proud. I, I, I think he realized that I did something he didn't do. He was a hot football guy. He was a CFL guy and a curling guy. Yes. And so he's in those Hall of Fames. And he, he covered hockey, but I took to covering hockey. So I think it wasn't like I was doing something that he'd done you know, covered the CFL or something. So he looked at it a little differently. I think he, you know, I think he was very proud that, and, and realized as I did that I was awfully lucky to get to Edmonton leaving Winnipeg and, you know, get all these great players to write about for a length of time. But I think he also said, you know, when my dad was working, it wasn't really a job for him. You know, he was getting paid to do something he loved doing and I was much the same. So I don't, you know, it's a job when on the days when you're writing three stories a day or you're writing 300 stories a year for you know, 30 years or however many you write them, but still not, you know, I don't consider it a job. And we all know Bryn, that there's a lot of people out there that they just long for Friday. Yeah. And then when Monday comes, going, oh man, another week of this, wherever they're doing it as a job. So it's, it's really a job to them in terms of us and the media business. In a lot of cases, it's, you know, it's the ability to hang around athletes because we all thought we were really good as kids, as athletes, and realized pretty darn quickly that we weren't good enough to be professional at it, that you're still able to, to be around athletes and go to hockey rinks and have people pay you to do that. Thanks for your time today. This is great stuff. Uh, this is what we have been saying an awful lot lately every time we get a guest on. We just don't know why we didn't get to you faster or sooner and this has uh, been a blast thank you again well thank you uh Bryn, for having me and thank you robin and uh robin you can write a book your memory is better than mine oh you you you'd be surprised hey and before before we go um i've said it before i gotta say it again because I, I don't i don't know i've said it directly to maddie uh we had a good chat with gene principe a couple of weeks ago uh there was a lot more than luck to do with that Elmer Ferguson award, Jim, um, yep. that longevity, that willingness to work. Um, and also that camaraderie you talked about with other reporters where you almost felt bad if you had something they didn't, that's why you're in the hockey hall of fame, my friend, uh, and deservedly. So, well, thank you very much. And, uh, like I said, it's still, I miss the camaraderie on the road, especially. You don't get it when you're hanging around, you know, Edmonton all the time. You don't get a chance to go anywhere. And there have been some some uh, writers. I've always considered myself, if I was going to use the analogy, would I be a first liner or a second liner? I think I would be a second liner because I can think of other guys who are in the Hockey Hall of Fame as hockey writers too. They're better than me, and I would read them all the time and say, I wish I could write like that. So. Um, like Cam Cole, in my mind, is a first liner, and uh, but I would to be in a, a, a top six player, top six uh, <laughs> in the top six. I would not be a a role player, although I do admire all those role players for sure. Well, get out there and hit a few down the middle, will you? He's still at the Highlands. I'm still at the Highlands, and you know what? They go down the middle, but they don't go very far. That's so right. That's, those par fours that you used to be able to kind of get to in two, now you're you're just short of the green chipping on, missing the putt, and making another bogey. So that's the story of my life. But uh, I'm still playing, and 
Well, at least it's a hey, little Maddie. warm. Maddie, thanks for this. Thanks for having me. Yes, The Outsiders is powered by the Macintosh Group at REMAX River City. I had a chance to talk to Brent not long ago, just before this heat wave, and we were talking about, is this a good time to sell or buy a new home? Well, you know what? The answer is yes. However, things are starting to slow down a little bit because here we are early into the month of July and generally slows down through July and August. But if you'd like to get some more information, and with the low interest rates out there right now, this is a good time to talk to Brent. And uh, the the one thing that uh, Brent wants to tell everybody is pick up the phone and give their team a call. They'd love to hear from you at 780-464-0075. Or you can check them out online at macintoshgroup.ca. Start the process with a complimentary evaluation of your current home. There's no obligation and no deadline for this offer, but just don't let the market pass you by. Give Brent a call. They'd love to hear from you, both buyers and sellers. Like I said, get a hold of the Macintosh Group at REMAX River City. Once again, we go another episode of the outsiders episode 65 robin can you believe that already and we had a rather sizable little break in there yeah 65 down and uh, a whole bunch more to go yeah i saw the i saw it on the notes um yeah 65 in the books good stuff man crazy great having jim matheson hockey hall of fame yeah. hockey writer on with us today you, you here's the thing with maddie i i it's always great chatting with him but once you start talking about him a little bit, he just he's such a private kind of guy. He just kind of doesn't want to go there. But I thought he brought some good stuff today, as always. Yeah, Maddie's the last guy who ever wants to talk about Maddie, and that's just the kind of guy he is. And, you know, um, like he said there, I mean, that's stunning. In the competitive world of sports, he's been one of the best beat writers for decades and kind of feeling bad when the other guy doesn't have what you have. That tells you a little bit about Jim Matheson. The other thing, too, that, that I will say is that he wouldn't say very much. When he said something, you kind of uh, stopped and went, oh, okay. I He's absolutely right about that. Like, he just, he would never interrupt you doing what you're doing. But when he said something, you had to value it because you knew that his longevity, his experience just as I would, we brought both Cam Cole and Terry Jones up in this market, the, you know, writers. Uh, there's a few other guys that, that I could probably list off as well, but not right now. I'm focusing on the, on those guys. When they spoke, you listened. Is it fair to say? Absolutely fair. Right on the money. Thanks for your time today. Of course, The Outsiders is brought to you by the Macintosh Group at REMAX River City. We want to thank Brent and everybody for jumping on board. Uh, the other thing we have to tell you is you can email us at theoutsiders at shah.ca. Also, check us out on Twitter. The handle's real simple. 
It is at Outsiders2020. Make sure you tell your friends to subscribe or follow us. Just uh, make sure you uh, click on the link for the RSS feed. Any of your favorite ear candy sites will have that. Apple, Google, Spotify, Pocket Casts, now on Deezer, which is another one. And we're also on YouTube. And your support is greatly appreciated. Been great to have Brent and everybody at the Macintosh Group on board, but would be thrilled to talk to some other potential advertising partners. And the other thing, too, we're looking to add some extra features. So we've got uh, we've got some ideas for some features that we're going to start to implement soon. And we just want to keep making this bigger and better with your support. So the growth over the last few months has been fantastic. But make sure you keep retweeting to your buds because that also pushes this even higher. Robin, thanks for your time. Get out there and enjoy the heat. Are you gonna? Is nice it, show, man. Is it going to be nude sunbathing at the Robin Brownlee household today or no? Oh, please, no. Uh, no, ate. I don't think so. I think, no, don't, don't, let's not, let's not bring up that well, Let's image. not go, let's not give people a visual. All right, no. Robin, we'll talk to you next week, man. Okay, see ya. <laughs> okay. Storm in the castle. <laughs>